Hello, I'm David Hamlin, producer of Lessons in the Dark, a series of podcasts about education by Mary Ellen Campagna. Check out her blog at https colon front slash front slash lessons in the dark 51.wixsite.com front slash lessons in the dark. You can hear her first three podcasts there as well. Also, Mary wants to announce that if you go to the Google and type in the journal of Sammy Gales, an unlikely, unlikely witch, the top entry on Google will give you a preview of Mary's new juvenile novel. And now, here's Mary. Hi everyone, I'm Mary Ellen Campagna. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast Lessons in the Dark. This is an exploration of education in America. Today we're going to talk about some of the philosophers and thinkers who've influenced us in the West, both in ancient history and more recently. Some of the thinkers I chose to focus on are those whose work may potentially be of great value to us now, even if they've not been given enough credit for their amazing ideas. And please remember that the canon in American academe has always been largely European. This will change in the future as it should. Some of the greatest academic thinkers in the world have been Asian, Persian, or now Iranian, African, Native American, Mexican, Russian, South American, and Indian, for example. Of course, I failed to mention all of them in this podcast. But as you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans were the biggest influencers in almost every area of Western culture, including education. They were rationalists, and they got us thinking about so many fascinating areas of life and of thought, everything from architecture to politics. Socrates started what we know as the Socratic method of teaching, which is a method of questioning the learner so that he or she may come up with an answer, often after a lot of deep thought. Thus, the learner becomes the teacher. The method is still very popular today, and it works much better than a lecture. One of the things I wondered, however, when focusing on the Greeks was, what about their famous mythology? How can they be considered rationalists if they're known for their mythology? Well, in her book, Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes, Edith Hamilton says that the myths were never irrational, but reflected the empirical or observed reality that the Greeks knew and were familiar with. As for the place and mission of the poet or the creative person within society, Socrates' two most famous students, Plato and Aristotle, disagreed. Plato feared the irrationality of the poet and wanted poets thrown out of the Republic, his idea of the just city-state. He felt that poets would only get carried away with voices from beyond that he called muses or the furies. They signaled uncontrollable emotion and even madness. However, Aristotle felt that man could be a co-creator with reality by imitating nature through art and poetry. He talked about plot or the pattern of action in a poem, story, or a play as the inward principle of the work. Thus, meaning might emerge from a chosen structure. 
I like the idea of being a co-creator, yet the fear of madness or insanity and creativity is a real concern too. Still, I would not be a fan of throwing poets and artists out of this republic or its schools. A link on my blog details Plato's comprehensive thoughts on education, many which I do not agree with. But if you have a child in an American school, be it public or private, you'll probably recognize some of the foundational thoughts that come from Plato. Again, Plato sees reality a little differently than Aristotle. Plato thinks that every empirically grasped object that we can see, like a chair, for example, is only a copy of changeless reality in the world of ideas called the forms. The forms are another realm, another realm of sorts, and they're in another zone of existence. We can't go there, at least not in this life. He sees the things in this life as mere shadows of the reality of the forms. Perhaps this belief is why he considered, is considered a realist concerning education in the Republic. He feels that a sort of caste system should be implemented so that only those individuals chosen to be leaders would receive the highest quality education. He did, however, believe in holistic education. I can agree with him on that, but not on his theory of prime education for the elite versus a mediocre education, if any, for the working class. I do, however, support the idea of trade schools or trade divisions of public high schools for students who wish to choose a trade that they may study in preparation for a career, because not everyone needs or wants college. But let's move back to Aristotle for a minute. He believes that forms or ideas can manifest through that which is concrete. Thus, the created universe for Aristotle is full of essence of being. I see essence as a kind of life force. If our students could see themselves as co-creators with reality or the universe, then they would likely be much more fulfilled in whatever subjects or careers they were to choose. Aristotle also inspired the modern plotline, otherwise known today as Freytag's Pyramid. Here the plot begins with exposition, where the characters, setting, and early action are introduced, and then climbs to climax or crisis action by way of a whole mountain of complications known as rising action, and then falls in falling action until it reaches resolution, just like a pyramid. American literature and art have been greatly affected by what happens globally, in other words, by world history and culture as they are manifested. For example, an art movement called Dadaism emerged in response to World War I. This movement began in Europe and quickly caught the imagination of the avant-garde in the West. Artists rejected the rational, preferring to replace it with the irrational. This became quite popular because war and nationalism made no sense to them at the time, and artists felt that art should reflect the reality of both history and culture. An example of Dadaism would be the urinal called Fountain by Marcel Duchot. 
It's just a ready-made sculpture that disgusted many people, but others would have paid a lot of money to have it. Postmodern art and literature followed modernism after World War II. Focus shifts to fragmentation, the unreliable narrator, irony, and paradox. The meaning behind language, once considered transcendental, becomes purely temporal and may be seen merely as sequential in some forms of postmodernism. The, the traditional plot line breaks into a series of climaxes or crisis actions on a sizzling flat line or horizontal line that leads nowhere. Resolution never comes and the contemporary audience or reader eventually becomes dissatisfied, demanding more and more sexual content, chaos, and violence. Sound familiar? These ideas undergird our entire culture, and yet they are rarely discussed in the classroom, except in a few college courses. But since education is not just about the curriculum, but about the learner, we must admit that the history of one's culture, including art, literature, and language, must, in some way, have its effect on education. Let's talk about a few philosophers and thinkers who we rarely hear about in regard to education, but who we should hear about. The teacher of Sigmund Freud and Edmund Husserl, Franz Brentano, was a German philosopher and priest who emphasized the necessity of intentionality in thinking and in education. His student Husserl took this idea even farther. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Husserl, a phenomenologist, defines the concept of intentionality as the power of minds to be about, to represent or to stand for things, properties, and states of affairs. Thus, for Husserl, if a teacher focuses with love in relating his or her knowledge to the student, the student will often intentionally focus on that which is to be learned. Indeed, unless this intentionality and total focus occurs, true learning will not take place. Abraham Maslow is another thinker whose work should be studied in more depth, especially in regard to education. The American psychologist's hierarchy of needs was expanded in the 1960s and 70s to include cognitive needs, Knowledge, understanding, curiosity, exploration, need for meaning and predictability. This was number six on his list of human needs. He also added aesthetic needs or appreciation for balance, form, and beauty. Then he added self-actualization needs, such as the need for realization of personal potential and personal growth peak experiences and fulfillment on a personal level. Finally, Maslow adds transcendence needs. These are values beyond the self that motivate a person, mystical experiences and even experiences with nature. As a psychologist, Maslow defines these human needs as measurable and therefore they are worthy of consideration in the contemporary American classroom. All of us as teachers, students, and our parents have witnessed some of these needs being met within the current system of pedagogy 
atop, adopted by the public school as an institution. However, please note the ones that are now almost non-existent today in many classrooms. Exploration and meaning and content, for example. Isn't Maslow really saying that kids need to learn about literature that may help them in the area of transcendence? And teachers need to teach it. I think his work suggests that inquiry needs to be open to include in-depth discussions of the classics, including modern classics that reflect culture and give direction to society. And this needs to happen within the public school system. If you would want your child to experience this, why wouldn't you want every child in society to have a crack at it? When I was in high school in Northern Virginia from 1968 to 1972, we had a very diverse student body. We were all given this opportunity to savor great literature and we cherished it. We remembered the lessons of As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner and The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, I Know Why a Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou and a slew of others. Yet many public schools are now eliminating their art and music departments and closing the door on necessary time for discussions of the rich repository of American and world literary classics. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, also has much to offer contemporary education. Thomas Glitz Johansson's article, Jung in Education, a review of historical and contemporary contributions from analytical psychology to the field of education suggests that Jung's analytical psychology could offer a counterbalance to the current focus on measurable learning targets and standardized measures of teaching and assessment. Kendra Cherry's article, Learning Styles Based on Jung's Theory of Personality, published by Very Well Mind, emphasizes Jung's four learning types, suggesting that learning styles and even classroom physical environment might easily be based on those. The link for Cherry's article is on my blog. Even Jung's thoughts on the archetypes of the collective unconscious seem to have some bearing on American education. These structures of the unconscious mind are complex and primordial images that enable human beings to individuate or become who they were meant to be apart from everyone else. According to Jung, our culture and every culture around the world nurtures certain universal archetypes. Thus, if we ignore them in the education of our children, it's to our detriment. Let's go back in time a little to English philosopher John Locke. Locke is one of those earlier philosophers who's given proper credit for his influence on American education. He pushed for kids to study a variety of scientific subjects as well as the study of trades, especially for men. He believed, however, that exposure to the sciences should be broad so that a child could choose whatever area captured his or her interest the most. Teachers should not steer but merely expose the student to varieties of knowledge and experience. Unfortunately, Locke found no use for either poetry or music and did not recommend their incorporation in the classroom. 
John Dewey was an American educational reformer, philosopher, and psychologist. He viewed brain development as a communal experience, so the individual must be considered as an integral part of the group, otherwise referred to as society. He was considered a pragmatist because he believed that ideas must be put to use in human action for them to be recognized as valid. Furthermore, he believed in the development of the human mind through process and experimentation. He had a great influence on what came to be thought of in his day as progressive education. Thus, for Dewey, ideas had to be put to the test. To better understand progressive education, please check out my blog. According to the John Dewey Project on Progressive Education, even though Dewey may have been progressive, many current thinkers in the field do not believe that progressive, meaning committed to diversity and providing for a socially engaged intelligence, would be a word that has ever totally defined American public education. Instead, conformity might be the applicable word. In 1919, the Progressive Education Association, led by Dewey, was founded, aiming at reforming the entire school system of America. However, that national movement was short-lived. Progressive reformers sought to oppose another national movement with the aim of separating academic education for the few from narrow vocational training for the masses. However, in the 1950s, during the Cold War era, the progressive agenda fell apart. Still, there are some models in place today that are reminiscent of Dewey, such as open classrooms, cooperative learning, and other experimental forms of teaching and learning. Scholars for the John Dewey Project write, Today, scholars, educators, and activists are rediscovering Dewey's work and exploring its relevance to a postmodern age, an age of global capitalism and breathtaking cultural change, and an age in which the ecological health of the planet itself is seriously threatened. We're finding that although Dewey wrote a century ago, his insights into democratic culture and meaningful education suggest hopeful alternatives to the regime of standardization and mechanization that more than ever dominate our schools. Italian-born Dr. Maria Montessori was a physician, a scientist, and an educator. We've all heard of the local Montessori schools. Did you know it cost anywhere from $999 to $14,000 a year to send a child there? That's ironic since Dr. Montessori started her famous school in Rome for the poorest of the poor kids. She wanted all children to have the same opportunities to learn and her methods were kinesthetic and environment-based as well as student-directed. <clears throat> she stressed living in peace with oneself and the world. But in the 1920s, her movement received lots of criticism and almost fell apart. Yet, according to the American Montessori Society, in the 1950s, the cultural climate was changing in the U.S., including a growing discontent with traditional American education. 
Among those seeking alternatives was a young aspiring teacher called Nancy McCormick Rambush. She had read the writings of Maria Montessori and was struck by the freshness of her ideas. So in 1953, she traveled to Paris to attend a Montessori Congress and learn more. Later, as a result of Rambush's efforts, the American Montessori Society was reborn and its schools took off again. If the contemporary public school class was based on just a few Montessori principles, education might take on a new meaning in our country. Some teachers in the public school classroom are trying to make that happen. As a scientist, Dr. Montessori was interested in measurable results, just like today's educators and legislators are. We have plenty to learn from our recent history. As I have said in an earlier podcast on standardized testing, this era in education began during the Reagan-Bush administrations. Of course, there were some required written tests and college entrance exams much earlier than that, but the total embrace of standardized testing in this country really began in the 1980s. The Heckinger Report, Time to Learn, published an article by Sarah Garland in 2014 titled, Why is a Reagan-era report driving today's educational reform? Garland wrote, A Nation at Risk, commissioned by the Reagan administration in 1981, was a scathing appraisal of public education. Its authors spent two years examining American schools and were appalled at what they found. Garland's article details the fears of the Reagan administration regarding the status of American academic scores compared to those of Asian countries. Standardized tests and SAT scores were falling, and the public education system was so bad that not only were U.S. students unprepared to join an increasingly high-tech workforce, 23 million Americans were functionally illiterate. Garland wrote, She then interviewed a school principal in New York, Dr. Aurelia L. Curtis. And Dr. Curtis said, I fundamentally agree with the premise of standards and the common core standards. The curriculum calls for critical thinking and creative problem solving and has helped boost the school to new levels of success. However, the dark side of the Nation at Risk report, especially for traditionally disadvantaged groups, has been the rise of the standardized test. Many educators agree with Dr. Curtis, but writer and educational historian Diane Ravitch, former Assistant Secretary of Education for George H.W. Bush, thinks the government needs to stay out of the business of legislating education. In 2011, she was asked an important question by Christina Rizga, a reporter from Mother Jones Media in an article titled The Education of Diane Ravitch. When Rizga asked her what her biggest concerns were for public education in the next decade, Ravitch replied the advance of privatization and a renewed push for vouchers, that we will actually go backwards in this country and that the public education system will be a dumping ground for kids who didn't make it into charters that we'll see in many cities a degradation of public education, that there will be charters skimming off gifted and high-performing kids, 
and we'll create a two-track system. Why do I mention people like Sarah Garland, Christina Rizga, and Diane Ravitch in this context? Well, Garland and Rizga are journalists, and Ravitch is a nonfiction writer. All are educational thinkers, researchers, and historians who care enough to put their messages out there. In fact, Ravitch's best-selling book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education, first printed in 2010 and again in 2016, is a testament to a new brand of intellectual honesty. Rizga writes of Ravitch, she, cre she critiques No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, and the punitive uses of testing to fire teachers and close schools. She also emphasizes the growing power of a few foundations like Gates, Broad, and Walton that she argues are reforming schools at an unprecedented degree without adequate local input. Ravitch once sat in the seat of conservative power in D.C., so she was able to oversee a lot, but she admits to having changed her mind when she began to understand more about what was and was not working. Author and thinker Chris Hedges writes in his book Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle. We now live in two Americas. One, now the minority, functions in a print-based literate world that can cope with complexity and can separate illusion from truth. The other, the majority, is retreating from a reality-based world into one of false certainty and magic. This is the divide between a literate, marginalized minority and those who have been consumed by an illiterate mass culture. In the end, Hedges promotes honoring the sacred in everything, including education. He writes, Love will endure even if it appears darkness has swallowed us all to triumph over the wreckage that remains. I am not a renowned educational thinker, writer, or philosopher like those whose names I've mentioned in this podcast, but I am an American citizen as well as a teacher, and I have traveled and taught both here in the States and in Asia, so I'd like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider the possibility that the dreadful national scores that President Reagan and others were concerned about may have been caused by several deep-seated issues within our American society, none of which can easily be remedied by more standardized testing with punitive possibilities for both students and teachers, or by an initiative such as Common Core, regal as it appears and helpful as it may be in some circumstances. Many of these issues may be complex and layered, and not necessarily the same issues that Asia is facing. There are tons of distinguished names in education and in educational philosophy, both today and in history. All those astounding voices are helpful and inspiring. The Top Education Degrees website published a list in 2014 titled The 30 Most Innovative People in education alive today. There will be some critical answers from those intellectual giants and more answers coming. 
But I guess my major concern is getting the questions right because you can have a million answers to all the wrong questions. Thanks for listening to Lessons in the Dark today, and please join us for our next podcast dealing with issues in education.